to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, and thanks for listening, making it into your learning. We hope that you are all doing well. Uh, we are hosts, I'm Yvonne Brandenburg, joined by the lovely Jordan Porter. Hi, girl. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm, dude, I'm tired today. Um, I haven't done anything, so there's not really an excuse. <laughs> Um, other than like, I think it's, it's like a little rainy today. So I'm like, it's like a good napping day. Mm, yeah. It's super rainy today too, which is weird for your area. Yeah. But, um, we celebrated the puppy's birthdays as I talked about last week. So yeah, the I pictures should've... were so cute. <laughs> I, it was so hard to get three of the five to sit still. <laughs> Right. Uh, Bailey ended up with like a scratch on her eye, trying like she was holding oh, a and like no. it like swatted her. And um, I ended up with like one of them like stepped on my foot and like made me bleed, and I was like, God. Oh my god. <laughs> but they all got cake. Only one got diarrhea. <laughs> like, and that um, was the that was the pumpkin cake or whatever. Yeah, the doggy like pumpkin cake. Yeah, That's so funny. They each got like two slices though. And I think it just upset Katie's tummy a little bit. Um, so Katie's getting a new cage for her birthday. Cause she's too big for hers. So that'll be here tomorrow. Oh no, they're all growing up. Ugh. It's the last big cage I have to order though. So it's like, we're finally okay. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. How was your week? busy just there's a bunch of stuff going on at work that you know just trying to get everything settled and then um just like next week I'll be flying to San Diego for that lecture I'm doing so I'm trying to uh, I got this weekend where I'm going to be finishing up all the powerpoints making sure those look okay um I mean I have most of them it's just you know making sure it's up to date and says what I want it to say (laughs) I find it funny that you are going like you're staying in the same state but you have to fly to get there yeah it's cool because if I drove it would be San Diego god that's like eight plus hours for me which is crazy because I could get to Tennessee in eight hours (laughs) it's probably like you driving down to Walt Disney World no Disney's only four hours for me (laughs) shut up (laughs) <laughs> all right well never mind I can't even get to Disneyland in four hours Disneyland is a six-hour drive for me holy cow that blows my mind <laughs> I, can get, I can go through I can get to like a third state in eight hours uh I can get to one state uh I think the the quickest I could get to a state is probably three hours from from like, here I can get from here to Ohio in 10 and that's going through South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, and then Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's so funny. Yeah. I can get to Nevada in about three hours. That's it. (laughs) Anything else is, is like Oregon is, I think 
uh, I think Oregon's like 10 to 12 hours from here. And then if I were to go to Mexico, which is the next thing to California, you're talking like from here, probably nine, 10 hours. That's crazy. It's just crazy <laughs> because, like, it's like, I mean, hell long. <laughs> I, I can get to South Carolina in 35, well, in 20 minutes, probably. Oh God, uh, that's so crazy. I can get to Florida in an hour and 15. Like, yeah. No, if I want to go to Vegas, Vegas is also in Nevada, right? That's a yeah. 10 to 12 hour drive easily. I could get to Auburn. <laughs> Auburn, I can get to in like five hours. Auburn University? Yeah. Wow. I could get to UC Davis in an hour and a half. Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> Still in California. Still in California. <laughs> it's just crazy to me. It's just. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a really long state. It's like the people who live in Texas. It's like, it's the exact same. Like it takes you like to leave the state of Texas. Well, Texas is also just like, it's like California is tall, but not, I mean, it's wide, but it's not crazy wide. Whereas like Texas is tall and wide. So it's like, it's just huge. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like Texas has got to be like a 12 hour drive, no matter which direction you go. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, we'll be in Austin this, this summer and we can like maybe Google stuff and just be like, how long does it take us to get to the next state? <laughs> like from, from Austin, how would, how long would it take me to get to like Louisiana? Like... Oh my God. <laughs> right. <laughs> so funny. Oh. <sighs> How random this, this, sorry guys, in case you wanted to know about, uh, geography, that's, that's what we're talking today. Google maps is what we're talking. (laughs) Oh, so funny. Yeah. I, I considered driving down to San Diego and I was like, no, I'll just fly. No, I mean, if it's that far, I would fly, but, uh, like I said, every far place that I go, like I'm going to go visit my friend and she's almost to Auburn and is even driving there is like three and a half hours. Mm. So funny. Uh, yeah. Yay states. <laughs> Yay states. Um, anything else like going on happening? Uh no not really um still settling into my job which I love nice um I think um for the academy I think the people who did their first part of the application should be announcing soon which is exciting yeah that should be announcing really soon yeah congratulations everybody who did the first part of their (laughs) application this year since we just you know changed it up um, so whoever did that is congratulations. And, you know, um, I hope you're working on the second part of your application already. <laughs> Cause that's, yeah. that's the long part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's really funny. So like, um, because a big part of the first part of the application is like CE and stuff like that. Um, one of the things I did just because I, was, I also deal with a lot of CE at work is I went on the, um, is it the AAVSB um, that does race approved stuff? So I got like their account on their, I think it's the CE broker or whatever, their, their 
they're using to manage CE hours. Yeah. It's actually kind of cool. Like you can upload your race approved, like CE forms, like you get your certificate and you can upload it to the website and it keeps track of it for you. Um, And it also keeps track of like how many hours you need for your state and tells you if you need more hours or if you've like completed it for your like licensure, which I was, I was kind of floored by that actually. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And it's not too expensive. I think. Cause I, cause the free one, I don't think you can like upload your stuff with the, the paid one, but it was like, it was pretty inexpensive. It was like 29 bucks a year, which isn't bad. Yeah. That's not bad at all. And like to keep your seed certificates all in one place, it's kind of golden. (laughs) So anyways, random, I know random. Not a paid sponsorship sponsorship, but no. <laughs> yeah, right. if you'd like to, that'd be great. <laughs> so we're talking about uh endoscopy this week. I know yes. we had a bonus episode on it like forever ago. I think it was like episode like, Yeah, seven. I think it was like foreign bodies and fun stuff. But this is like this is like the a little bit more nitty-gritty about scoping. Um so it's going to be some of the basics of like what the scopes are. We'll talk about some tips and tricks um, and just kind of becoming more familiar with this diagnostic tool, tool arsenal that we have. Yeah. Cause scoping, I don't know. Scoping super fun for me, but I'm weirdo. So depending on the scope, <laughs> this is true. There are those foreign body ones that I hate. <laughs> any food foreign body and i'm like hard pass please yeah food all food sucks food sucks real bad um learn how to chew animals <laughs> right oh my god the potatoes uh yeah <laughs> we'll just vet tech soapbox for a minute <laughs> I hated the potato. I hated it. I hated it. I hate it. I hate it. Like don't feed your damn dogs potatoes. Like just (laughs) no mashed potatoes is fine. Chunks of potatoes, unless they're really small, just don't give it to your dog. Like it gets wedged in there. Stupid. And then you can't like get it because it just breaks apart. It's too soft (sighs) to grab, but too hard to like push in. But not even that, because it's like, if you, I don't know, like, it's, it's just, just annoying. It's annoying. <laughs> like, it's like they're cooked perfectly for humans. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I told you, I told the story about how my cousin had a esophageal foreign body. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. That I'm was still- in our stricture episode probably probably (laughs) (laughs) i know i was like oh i don't know i I sometimes wonder i'm like do i have a stricture how would i know if i had a stricture and i was like oh anyway i imagine you'd regurge a lot probably and i don't do that so it's okay (laughs) so we're gonna um first we're gonna kind of break down our scopes into the kinds of scopes that we have um and I put it in the, in the show notes, but there's a couple of really good references. Um, 
One is from the University of Florida. They have this really great section from their internal medicine endoscopy stuff with like a bunch of links and pictures and they have some videos, like it's really cool. Um, and then I found on today's veterinary practice and clinicians brief, some different endos endoscopy, um, uh, articles. And then, um, Purdue university had one that we'll talk about in a minute that is, um, for, uh, capsule endoscopy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but we'll talk about that. Um, Capsule endoscopy done? Have I had it done on me? Yeah. No. Have I done one? Yes. <laughs> My friend had it done on her, um, but I've never had it done, nor have I done it. It just seems like, it, it just seems horrible because you have to dig through poop. Yeah. Until you find it. Yeah. Which, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> so, um, the first kind of scopes we'll just kind of mention is rigid scopes. So these are the ones, um, they're usually shorter. I, I like, like you can see my hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm holding them out. So they tend to be less than a, like less than 12 inches long. Um, usually like around six to eight is what I've seen most of them, but you can definitely get them smaller. Um, otoscopes count for this. Um, so we've got different things that we'll do with the rigid scopes. Um, they usually also have sheaths on them. Yeah. Um, so there's usually like, um, there's like the eyepiece, then there's the, the center part, which has the light and the, um, the camera part of it. Um, and then the sheath go goes around that. It's like usually a metal sheath and then mm -hmm. that's used. Um, there's like a channel that goes through it. Um, and that's where you put like water or, um, biopsy you can forceps. biopsy for up forceps or foreign bodies, so forceps, those kinds of things. Um, so usually a rigoscope, um, we use them in internal medicine. We'll use them for some rhinoscopies, um, to look in the nose we could do, um, not necessarily a colonoscopy cause that's, um, that's a much longer area, but we just need to look in the rectum or, you know, the very end part of the colon, we can use a rigoscope for that. Um, and then female urethroscopy, um, or urethrocystoscopy, if you want to throw that all together. Um, and then in, I don't know, I think of like surgery, <laughs> um, surgery is doing like arthroscopy, laparoscopy, thoroscopy. Um, we don't typically do that in medicine. That's like, it's a surgery part of the world. <laughs> that's, a, that's a no. Yeah. Um, rigid scopes are video scopes and, and I'll talk about the difference between video and fiber. Actually, I may as well just do it now. So video scope is there's usually some, uh, a chip at the end of the, the, the scope. So the tip of the scope, and then that chip, um, sends the information up to the video monitor or, um, the eyepiece, depending on the setup of the rigid scope and then a fiber scope, um, 
Fiberscope has fiber, uh, fiber optic glass, um, and that goes through the body of the scope um, from the tip to the eyepiece. Um, the problem with that is it's a bunch of little fiber optics, um, and those can each, those can potentially break. Um, so you can get like those black pixels on your screen if one of the little fiber optics is broken. Um, the picture quality also tends to be less with fiber optic versus uh, the video scope. So fiber optics tends to be a little bit less expensive than a video scope um, comparison wise. And it just depends on the brand that you're getting and which, which type of scope you get. So rigid scopes tend to be video scope because you can't really run fiber optics through it. Um, flexible scopes is I think the one that we deal with the most in yeah, clinics. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and we can get those in a wide variety of lengths, um, diameters, and it just depends on, um, what you're going to be using it for. So obviously mm -hmm. if you've got small cats, small dogs, or you're going into a bladder, you're not using the same scope that you would use on a big dog to get into the colon. Mm -hmm. No, and typically <laughs> too, like our, our flexible scopes can be, um, like our bronchoscopes too. And those are different. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of scopes, um, that are flexible with the, the fiber scopes. Um, they typically have a light source air or water channel or both, um, for insufflation and irrigation. But like I said, the bronchoscopes don't have the water chamber. So those are a little different. Yeah, it is. Yeah. They have, um, just the single port for mm -hmm. passing instruments. Yep. Um, yeah. And the, and the reason for that in the, in also your reader scopes aren't going to have that extra port either, just because again, they're so tiny in diameter. There's just really no room to put that extra port in there. Um, so uh, flexible can be either video scope or fiber scope, depending on, again, what brand you get. Um, you want to be extremely careful while handling a flexible scope. Um, you know, we don't want to crank on it and flex it too much. We don't want to, um, well, when we're setting it up, we want to test it first. So always leak test before you're setting it up and then um, set up your scope. Make sure, you know, we don't have a hole in it anywhere. That would That's suck. Bad. Uh, Cause that causes water or <laughs> other substances, gastric juices um, to get into the scope and actually cause more damage. So just, you want to make sure that you're pressure testing it prior to each procedure. Um, you want to make sure any instruments that you pass through there are in, in good working order. Um, and closed when you pass through. <laughs> yeah, they're closed. Like you look at the hinges. Cause I know, um, like on some of my like radigators and stuff, the hinges are really big. Yeah. And so if they don't close right, then they stick out a little bit and they can actually scratch the inside of the, the instrument channel and then that's where you get leaks as well so just be really careful with that um the other thing too is when you know especially with foreign bodies um because you know we want to hold on for dear life to our foreign body and then we pull it up against the end of the tip of the scope 
just be really careful when you're doing that because you don't want to break or damage the tip of the scope either. Um, so sometimes you, you do have to push back on your doctor a little bit and just be like, I can't do that. I will break the scope. I do that. They the don't think about it. <laughs> like open. And I'm like, I'm not out far enough. And he's I like, know, oh. right? They're like open. I can't. Can you please yeah, back I, up so I can come out? <laughs> push open, push, push out just a little bit further. He's like open. I'm like a little bit further. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that, you know, when you work as a team with your doctor, like hopefully you can do that communication. Um, but don't, but, but they may not realize that they're, you know, <laughs> the instrument's not out all the way. So you might have to be the person that tells them no. <laughs> um, the other thing too, when we're cleaning our, our um, scopes, you want to make sure right after the procedure, you're at least rinsing it out so that stuff doesn't cake in there and get nasty. And, and then cleaning is even harder. Ideally you should be cleaning right away. So nothing sits in there. Um, and then again, when you're done cleaning it, you want to pressure test it as well so that we make sure we haven't caused any damage. And if we did, um, we're sending it out <laughs> to get fixed right away. Oh, Oh, <sighs> yeah. You, the other thing too, is just making sure when you're handling it, like you don't let the tip of the scope hit things. Um, like hopefully it doesn't hit the side of the table cause it fell. Um, when you're hanging the scope, just make sure like the, I don't know what, like the handle yeah. and the, usually the part that plugs into your scope tower, making sure that doesn't just hang on there and cause problems with that connection part because that can be an issue so um what other tips do you have on scopes um have you ever have I told the story about how I accidentally broke a rigid scope a rigid scope no (laughs) to be fair okay so um this was a combo fault player here it was my fault and my doctor's fault. <laughs> oh, um, but we had just finished a rhinoscopy and I was like, I was recovering the pet and the tower was behind me and he had set the rigid scope up on the tower. And like, I, I had enough room, but at the same time, I didn't like, he should have moved the tower back. The dog went to jump off the table <gasps> as it oh, woke no. up. And so I turned and I grabbed the, the dog um, so she couldn't jump off the table and my scrub top caught the rigid scope and dropped it on the floor and it broke. This was like shortly after I started and I felt so bad. I was crying. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. They're like, you were, <sighs> they're like, you were saving a patient. That's fine. I was like, it's not fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really easy for them to get like crushed between things or dropped on the floor. So just especially with all the cords hanging off of them, you just need to be aware of like the area surrounding this <laughs> tower and like yes. the, the cart. It's so like with true. all the cords and stuff, it's so easy, for, especially for a rigid scope, but at least with the flexible scope, you can kind of hang it up on the tower and like keep it out of yeah. the way. Yeah. But the rigid scopes, like there's nothing holding those on. <laughs> like I know we need like a rigid scope holster. <laughs> yeah. It needs like, it needs like a rack, like something yeah. that you it in. I bet people have one and they're going to like send us images of it and we're going to be like oh I said I was going to cut a yoga mat to fit the top of the tower so mm. that way like 
things couldn't slide off of it. <laughs> yeah. I usually have, um, I usually have a Mayo stand that's next to our tower. So I can put, at least put things on the Mayo stand, um, yeah. just because of how our room is set up. But, um, and that's the other thing, right? Like our rooms are usually tiny <laughs> that yeah. we're doing these procedures in. So, you know, just, just be careful, read the instructions for each individual scope that you have, because they can be different depending on, um, depending on the brand and, and what kind they are, just make sure that you understand how to, you know, use them and maintain them, make sure you've get proper trained on them. Um, you know, make sure that people know that if you aren't trained on the scope, like, please do not handle it. Um, really they shouldn't be doing emergency scopes in the middle of the night without internal medicine being involved or someone who's trained on the scope. Um, just because it, they're expensive pieces of equipment. <laughs> yeah. Very, very expensive pieces. of equipment. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing too, is like when you're cleaning it, just making sure you're, you're using the proper, you know, know what things you need to be cleaning both inside outside using the brushes all that stuff it'd be amazing if we could all have automatic processors but um those are also expensive are very expensive i looked into it yeah we looked into it too and we were like oh never mind yeah <laughs> we're like okay can't afford that we're not a human hospital um the other two thing too like when we're talking like biopsy instruments and stuff like that um they're meant for one-time use only. I'm they're they're in human medicine. They only use them one time. They don't reuse them. So just be aware. They're not meant for long-term use. Um, so just if, if you're not getting great biopsy samples, get a new biopsy instrument, um, unless your clinic specifically does the one-time use mm -hmm. great. If not, just make sure that you're not using them too much because then your, your quality of your samples actually go down. So. And if you do reuse them, label them with a piece of tape saying how many times they've been used because it's yeah. helpful. <laughs> yeah. We used, um, we put Sharpie marks on the handle, the little. Yeah. Hands, Cause it stays on there. Yeah. We used to reuse them. We no longer do. Yeah. We stopped reusing them cause we just were having yeah. issues with them and they weren't, I mean, they're, they're not cheap, but they're not expensive. Like, yeah, exactly. Not crazy. So especially now that they have like the disposable ones are, they're less expensive, which is great. Yeah. Um, so capsule endoscopy is interesting. Um, it's not, it's not a super common, um, thing that we do in internal medicine. Um, not many places will do them. We had them for a little while at my clinic. Um, and the, the, so the benefit of a capsule, um, is it's a small, well, it's just not small. It's a, it's a larger capsule, but it's, it's not like bigger than like, I think of cephalexin as kind of the big capsule. It's not yeah. too much bigger than cephalexin. Um, but, uh, sucralfate size. Yeah. I would say sucralfate size. Okay. Yeah. So a little cat, that might be a problem, but you know, dogs, we can, we can try it. So what happens is it's, it's non-invasive. So basically, um, we do want our patients to fast ideally prior to this, just like with any other procedure. Um, but we give it to them, give it to them orally. 
um, and it passes along the GI tract. Um, the problem is we're just going to be viewing the GI tract. There's no way to get biopsies or get any other diagnostics. Um, and then depending on the GI motility of that patient, um, it can take 24 hours or sometimes longer for the capsule to get through the GI tract. Um, we had a patient that it took six or seven days actually to get through the full GI tract just because of horrible GI motility. Um, so just, just clients need to understand that that is a possibility and they need to be okay with that. Um, the other part of that is, um, you need to check all the poop <laughs> between giving it. And when you finally find the capsule, because it needs to be, the capsule needs to be sent back for processing for the images. Like it doesn't just automatically upload you have to like get it out of the poop and send it back for image processing in humans, in humans i don't think that you have to dig through your poop anymore um oh, that's nice like you wear this like purse camera thing that like oh it's probably like the wi-fi <laughs> yeah it's like a bluetooth like it uploads the images as it goes kind of thing nice yeah that's awesome. I mean, it, it's been a little while since we did the capsules. So I wonder if like now you don't have to, although I can just imagine like a dog wearing like a little purse. Yeah. I don't know how well it would work for animals unless they'd have to wear like, um, like a vest, like a, like a fanny pack, <laughs> fanny pack or a thunder shirt with like a little pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the capsule, uh, it's good for like follow-up um, images. So like, especially if you've got a patient with really bad, like ulcers, um, that's, that's an option. Or you have a patient who like anesthesia is just not an option, but the owners really want to see what's going on. So like, is there a mass? Is there not a mass? That kind of thing. So, Can you yeah. tell me, does the capsule, is it able to view like all the way around? Like, are you able to see all of the yeah, supposedly it's a 360 view. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so we're going to break down what we're doing endoscopy for. Um, so one is treatments, which is considered interventional endoscopy. And then the other is diagnostics. Um, I would say 90% of endoscopy that we do is, is diagnostics. I was gonna, okay, maybe 75. I, yeah, I would say between like 80, 85. Yeah. 75 to 90. How's that? Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, and that, and that's, it's, I'm sure that's hospital specific, but internal medicine, I would say we do mostly diagnostic endoscopy. Um, so diagnostics, this is where we're visualizing. Um, so we're looking at for inflammation, we're looking for foreign bodies. Um, hopefully you're not diagnosing intestinal parasites, but we can find parasites depending on where we're looking. We can look for congenital abnormalities. Um, if you have like a brachycephalic animal, we can check to see like, do they have a hernia? Do they have, um, you know, growth of, um, the stomach tissues because of the increased 
pressure from constantly breathing really hard through a straw. Uh, are we looking, you know, do we see any GI ulcers, masses, strictures? So this is, we're getting biopsies. The biopsies are going to look for things like GI lymphoma, um, IBD, or kind of all those inflammatory diseases, infections. Um, usually the biopsies aren't for parasites. <laughs> usually that's just visualization of them. Um, but that's what we typically do for diagnostics. For treatments, right? So um, these are... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a, uh, but they can be cool. Um, I'll take a fish hook over a piece of food any day. Ooh. Hmm. I have mixed feelings on the fish hook. Of course, the fish hook has its risks for sure. And it's complications with, I guess it depends. Is it a simple fish hook or is it like a treble fish hook? Because those suck. A simple fish hook, not one of those crazy oh, yeah. three-pronged ones. Right. I'll take I'll take a single, like simple fish hook, but a treble, forget it. Those those usually have to go to surgery. Yeah, that's oh. Um, so for foreign bodies, right? Um, this is upper GI only, like if we're talking GI. Um, so once foreign bodies like enter the pylorus and into the duodenum, um, it's kind of game over. <laughs> like yeah. that means surgery. Um, cause we don't want to pull anything out of the duodenum. Um, cause we can't tell sometimes like how long that foreign body is. So we don't want to cause problems, but if it's a simple thing and it's in the stomach or esophagus, but if there's food in the stomach, it's also a no-go. Well, it, it's, we, mm, we've definitely done scopes with food in the stomach. I mean, we have too. It's just it's one of not those, ideal. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so hard. So it's one of those things where it's like, if you're tossing up between a scope versus a like uh, bulk up and feed and then see what happens just go with the scope, don't feed and then try to send it for a scope. Yeah. Ours are usually the ones that like, they just ate whatever the hell it is that they, you know, but, but they also had breakfast or dinner. Right. Um, and like, we've actually, we've done some gastric lavage on patients before because they've just had so much stuff in their stomach. Yeah. Um, to like, to try to visualize this foreign body. Um, but yeah, ugh foreign bodies foreign bodies i feel like we i feel like we're having like some ptsd moment right now from foreign bodies we're like oh well i haven't done a foreign body in a hot minute either so yeah it's so weird because i feel like they come in like waves <laughs> um what's the craziest foreign body you've ever taken out uh chicken bone above the soft palate mm. Wow. So, it was so crazy. Like, and we were prepared, we were prepared for the worst and for it to like take forever. Um, but we got in there with the graspers and it just came, we just like flipped it down and it came right out. And it was like, it oh, took longer to anesthetize the pet than it did to remove the chicken bone. 
but it was in like the nasal pharyngeal area we had a dog that um i also don't have foxtails here yeah well foxtail oh god i'm just gonna not talk about foxtails because they can go over wherever the hell they want um we had a husky-ish dog i can't remember i think it was like a husky dog um And it was like eating rocks in the backyard. I think it was like under the barbecue because that's when they start eating rocks. And it was like really smooth river rock. Yeah. And I guess it like vomited. And somehow when it vomited, it went up into the nasopharynx. Nice. And we couldn't grasp it because it's a smooth rock. So we had, we literally had to go from the front with red rubber tubes and like push with the red rubber tubes to push the rock out of the nasopharynx into the oropharynx so we could grab it like it was so crazy um i had a sunflower seed like a whole sunflower seed in a frenchy puppy one time in the nose that was weird because it kind of grew nasal foreign bodies so you haven't no knock on wood well knock on wood like (sighs) i work in clinic still i know you don't you don't work there right now (laughs) Um, we've had sticks. Like we had a client one time tell, tell, like call up and be like, there's something in my dog's nose. I see it. It comes out and then it like goes back in. And we were like, okay, whatever. You're crazy. Um, and it was like this, I don't know, 14 year old dog. And we're like, cool. I'm so glad we're anesthetizing it for something that pops out and then goes back in like what. And we anesthetized this dog and it was like, um, I don't know, healer or some sort of like that style dog. And we pulled out a stick. I'm not even kidding you. It was four and a half inches long. So every time the dog would breathe out of its nose, it would like pop out a little bit and then it would suck it back in and then it would pop out like sneeze and it would pop out and then suck it back in. And we're just like, Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So foreign bodies, always fun. Um, however, if they're esophageal, foreign bodies and they've been there a while it can cause the structure um so we did do a stricture episode there was uh episode 73 um which was the gastrointestinal stricture so we kind of talked about this um which is probably where your story was about your cousin um, yeah restriction so yeah probably. um yeah the most common ones that I think I've seen it's definitely been esophageal strictures for sure. Um, you can get some nasal cavity strictures, colon strictures, um, urethral strictures, which sounds horrible, but I would guess after passing a stone, you could get that. Mm-hmm. Um, basically it's anytime you have that, that, um, scar tissue that, that happens. And so it's super common for us to get that with patients with regurgitation, um, from like chronic GI or a foreign body or post-anesthetic. We've seen some strictures happen because of, um, an anesthetic procedure. So, um, you know, maybe the, the endotracheal tube is too inflated and we cause a stricture in the trachea, which is all sorts of bad, um, or reflux post-anesthetic um, and then medications. Um, so this is why it's important to make sure medications go all the way down. Um, other things that we could do is we can remove a bladder polyp, um, with the, 
um, by going in with the ureteroscope, or well, actually a cystoscope. We can remove stones if you have the appropriate um, scope and tools and the stones aren't too big. Um, and then the other thing is um, placing a peg tube. So uh, those are fun. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done them in so long. I can't yeah, remember the last peg tube I've done. Yeah, it's been a it's been a hot minute. The last one we did it on was on a um, a bulldog that had like a weird neurologic condition and couldn't like close his mouth and eat. Oh, yeah, bummer. Yeah, and that's I mean, peg tubes are good for those patients where you've got like a long term issue. Um, so uh, hit my car with like a jaw fracture. Um, you know, if you've got like a stricture that you're dealing with, maybe in the trait or in the esophagus, maybe you do a peg tube, um, just to, to bypass the mouth and esophagus. Um, so that's, that's a good option. Also chronic anorexia patients. Um, so in theory, you know, if you've got like a chronic kidney cat that has issues eating and keeping hydrated, um, a peg tube is an option. Um, so you know, that's something that you just talk about the benefits versus risks with, with clients. So this is the fun stuff. This is the types of scopes boop, boop. or types of scoping, actually not types of scopes. Cause we talked about the scopes already, but the types of scoping, uh, I would say bread and butter for internal medicine is upper and lower yeah, gyroscopy, sure. <laughs> which includes esophagoscopy, gastro, mm-hmm gastroscopy and then duodenoscopy <laughs> yeah uh yeah i like i like upper gis better than lower gis for sure i totally agree with you but um esophagoscopy is obviously evaluating the esophagus for any abnormalities typically we're going to look for issues with swallowing regurgitation um, or drooling has been noted and so we're going to be looking at the esophagus for things like a stricture or ulceration um, or a foreign body um, or even just inflammation such as esophagitis um, and, and things including parasites too. Uh, things to watch out for would be because we have to insufflate and uh, fill with, well, flush with water that can kind of like regurge back out into the mouth and go down in the trachea. So that's something that we want to watch for is any aspiration. Um, but as long as our endotracheal tube is sufficiently inflated properly, then we shouldn't hopefully have those problems. Right. It's a risk. And then for our gastroscopy, what we're doing is we're going to be evaluating the stomach. This is especially useful if we have patients with like kind of chronic GI issues, vomiting, decreased appetite, uh, masses, or if there's a suspected GI bleed. A lot of these procedures are going to end up where we take biopsies to evaluate inflammation, the type of inflammation versus neoplasia versus infection. Again, you're not really hoping to find parasites here, but (laughs) hopefully not. (laughs) Um, And things to watch for on our gastroscopy patients is bloating uh, or GDV. And then, so it's important to monitor closely because we're insufflating with air and trying to fill that stomach to stretch it out so we can see all the areas of it. You really want to monitor these patients afterwards 
for signs of bloating. And we do suction a lot of that air out, but obviously if the uh, bowels are moving like they should, some of that air is going to get through um, and some of it's going to stay in the stomach as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing too, is like, even like with esophagoscopy, because we're insufflating, just make sure like if you're monitoring anesthesia, that the stomach's not getting too distended because that can cause like bagel responses and stuff like that. And then mess with your anesthesia. So, um, you know, just make sure you're kind of keeping an eye out on the stomach to make sure it's not getting too big and causing issues. And, and then if it is getting big, just let your doctor know, and then they can suction it out a little bit. Um, yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but doctors appreciate you're gonna release that. that. Yeah. If you feel the stomach and you go, it's not squishy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then our duodenoscopy, um, that's looking at our small bowels, our small intestines. And this is going to be for things such as like chronic diarrhea. We're usually looking for small intestine GI signs, um, like that the diarrhea is large in volume, normal frequency, or dark, tarry black school stools indicating an upper GI bleed. Um, and then we're also going to want to evaluate the papillae for any inflammation um, or issues causing pancreatic issues or bile duct obstruction or inflammation. Um, with, like a foreign body. Yeah. With these ones, I try to tell pet parents to watch out for just like their pets being gassy. Same thing though, still monitor for bloat um, because we have to insufflate to get all the way down in there. Um, and then I'd like to tell them they're going to oh, go hear signs. Oh yeah. They're going to be a little farty. The other thing too, that we didn't really talk about with the other ones is if you are doing biopsies, um, especially if you're biopsying like a mass or some sort of like erosion area, just be very careful that you're not pushing too hard. Cause we don't want to perforate anything. So no, that's bad. That could be for any of our, any of our scoping. <laughs> Um, and we always do our upper GI first before our lower GI. Da, da, da. Um, should be obvious reasons. <laughs> right? We don't want to stick that back down the mouth after it's already been up the bum. No, although dogs eat poop, so. This is true. A lot of my puppies, <laughs> although they're not puppies anymore now that they've had a birthday. Eh, they're still puppies. They'll forever be the puppies. Uh, so lower GI, um, this is going to be looking at the large intestine. So we're also looking for chronic diarrhea, um, or weight loss, that kind of thing. Um, so the signs that we're going to look at is like small volume, increased frequency, diarrhea, fresh blood in the stool. So, um, indicating lower GI, um, straining or difficulty passing stool or other abnormalities noted on our physical exam. So like maybe there's something abnormal on the rectal. So we're concerned about the colon um, or, you know, we do an abdominal palpation and we eat the doctors um, or us, we feel thickened intestines or hopefully not a mass. Um, but, you know, that could be, that could be things that we notice. Um, for a lower GI, we do need to prep these patients a little bit differently than an upper GI. Upper GI, um, I would say it's like standard anesthetic fasting yeah. Um, yeah. versus like, yeah, yeah. Versus like a lower GI, because we need to like, make sure that they're cleaned out. Right. Um, we do need to make sure that it's at, it's usually a 24 hour fast. Um, 
And so the other part of that too is either enemas um, or doing like an oral medication to increase the stool clearance, whether that's, um, what is it, Osmoprep or um, Go Lightly, I think are the two that I think of. Um, you know, use like metoclopramide and lactulose. Yeah. So what, whatever your medications, the doctors choose, right. Um, and then, um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're cleaning them out as well as possible. Um, and the reason for that is if, if there's too much poop in the way, we're not going to be able to see anything. Um, so that, you know, we just need to make sure that clients are aware of, does take a longer fast for these animals. Um, we can do two ways. We, if we're doing the colonoscopy, you know, if we're just looking like rectum and dis, distal colon, we can use a rigid scope, but most of the times we're using a flexible scope. Usually it's the same one we've done the upper GI with. Um, and then we also try to get into the ileum, but sometimes that's impossible. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's up to the doctors, whether or not they feel comfortable doing a blind biopsy of the ileum. Um, you can do that. The problem is, is like, if there's any, any issue or erosion or something like that, like you could potentially, you know, biopsy something you don't want to. So yeah. Um, it's kind of up to the doctors. How comfortable they are. See that that was done. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we do, um, like respiratory scopes as well. So rhinoscopies are the big ones that we do, um, frequently. So we use rhinoscopy in our chronic sneezing cases, nasal discharge or congestion, especially epistaxis. Um, and a lot of times we're going to suggest doing a CT scan prior to scoping. So we can look at the cribriform plate and make sure that things are intact still before we scope. Mm. Um, and the scope itself, what it does is it visualizes the nasal cavity as well as the frontal sinus cavities. If you're able to get up in there, um, the nasal pharyngeal area and the oral pharynx, um, we can use this for foreign body removals, as you heard from <laughs> stories, um, nasal mites, which I've never <laughs> seen. I would like to see, uh, cause I hear they scatter as soon as the light hits them. Yeah, we uh, had a dog that we anesthetized, and I think the yeah you anesthetic gas just like made it made him pour out ah! of it. <laughs> yeah, um, it was creepy. We're gonna biopsy the nasal cavity for neoplasia versus inflammation. We're also gonna get cultures for bacteria versus fungal versus viruses, and then lots of flushing. Um, and then you can actually do uh, infusion of antifungals if a fungus is noted, uh, plus or minus trephination into the sinus cavities to infuse that area as well to try to get rid of that really resilient fungus. <laughs> um, and then tracheoscopies where we're looking at the trachea, so things like chronic coughing, difficulty breathing, honking. Uh, we can do foreign body removals here. It is high risk, but it's possible. Um, and aesthetically high risk, just because we, we want to pre-oxygenate these patients before scoping, because when we're doing a tracheoscopy, obviously, especially if it's for something like a foreign body or, um, a stricture or something, or visualizing, even we can't intubate these patients unless it's a big dog and the scope fits through there, but you still want to visualize the whole trachea. So it's not ideal to intubate these patients. 
Um, but you can see things like collapsing trachea, which is always fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, like it's a quick procedure and you're like, yep, collapsing. Bye. <laughs> well, and I think it depends on the size of the patient, right? Um, yeah. If it's a larger patient, you can intubate them and pass the scope through it. Um, but yeah, it's not ideal. Hopefully you're just going to look and get out of there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you can do bronchoscopy. So going down into the bronchioles, uh, same thing for chronic cough, respiratory difficulty, or airway disease. You're basically, um, looking to see if there's collapse down there as well, or looking for inflammation or foreign material. You can do a bronchiovular lavage, um, scary procedure, but can be done. But basically you, um, infuse the lungs with some sterile saline dependent on the patient's weight. Um, and then make sure that there's no antimicrobials in the sterile saline. And then you're going to, um, pull back that fluid and use, uh, and get like a fluid analysis or cytology on that. Um, and then you can also use a cytology brush for cytologies and cultures as well. Um, anesthetically. Do you use, also- a, do you use the cytology brushes? No, I don't either. Um, and I don't know if that's a, just a doctor preference thing. I don't know. Yeah. I've asked my doctor about it and he says that, um, they're just so like to get enough cells is so difficult, like for the risk of it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. But anesthetically though, these guys are also high risk just because we, especially if we're going to do a BAL, um, we're going to want to pre-oxygenate and then depending on the size of the tracheal tube, if the patient is large enough, we can kind of go ahead and do this with like within the tracheal tube. Um, but again, it's, if you're doing a bronchial scope, it's better to be able to intubate than if you were to do like a tracheal scope. Cause in the, with the tracheal yeah. scopes, you want to be able to see the trachea and not have it occluded by an endotracheal tube. Yeah. A lot of times we'll do like, my doctor will do like a quick pass, look down there, look at the trachea and then we intubate them and then we yeah. do the bronchoscopy. Um, and, and depending on the patient, um, we may pre-treat even with like terbutaline yeah. or one of those other uh, med- meds and just, you know, but that's just, um, it, de- it just depends, um, what you've got. And then the oxygen flowing through the scope, um, yeah. cause we want to keep a very close eye on oxygenation levels and all that fun stuff. So, uh, so you're a genital, um, so urogenital, we typically will do kind of the whole urogenital view, not just one or the other. Um, and so this is cystoscopy, urethroscopy, vaginoscopy, obviously if it's a girl. Um, so it does require special scopes though. They tend to be much smaller than the GI scopes. Um, and when we're doing these, they need just like with a bronchoscopy, which we didn't actually mention, they do need to be sterile prior to using them. Um, so we do need to sterilize them, whether that's gas sterilized or, um, cold sterile, depending on what you've got. Um, so with these ones, um, we're looking for patient, like a patient, if they have chronic or recurring 
lower urinary tract signs like um, infections. So in the urinary bladder or um, the vaginal canal, those kinds of things we may be looking. Um, if we have stones, if we have polyps, um, or if we suspect ectopic ureters, we can also biopsy if we're looking at like maybe um, a mass um, foreign body. We can also get foreign bodies. If you live on the West Coast, uh, foxtails also love going up here um, into the, the vaginal canal. And we've definitely scoped out that. I've also scoped out a stick out of a poor girl. Like it was horrible. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. It, yeah. It was a stick. Like it was a long stick. I'm like, you had a stick up your who <laughs> for a couple of days. It was causing infection. Go figure. So how was that dog able to walk? Like <laughs> she was, she actually walked fine. I mean, it was, um, you know, like the, is it, well, actually we had two, which is crazy. One was like, just kind of a small stick, um, like a, like a twig, I wouldn't say a stick. And then the other one, um, was, you know, those, um, the pine trees, but it's like the, the ones that have like the multiple little pine needles. It was one of those stuck up there. And I was like, how was that comfortable? Obviously she was very irritated by it, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of licking, <laughs> some scooting. <laughs> um, so that can, you know, we could scope stuff like that out. Um, and I also scoped out uh, after doing a scope, we scoped out uh, a urinary catheter because the dog got her e collar off and decided to chew her Foley in half. So we had to go back in and scope out the other half of the, the Foley catheter. So always make sure they wear e-collars. Um, and then kind of the, the final scoping is abdominal. So laparoscopy, um, again, I feel like this is mostly surgical and not internal medicine, but it's really cool. Like if you ever get a chance to see it, um, it allows you to be able to visualize all your abdominal organs from the outside. Cause you're inside the abdomen, but you're outside the organs. Um, and we could get biopsies. So the most common one is like a lap liver biopsy. Um, you can remove a gallbladder this way, um, or there's other soft tissue, like minimally invasive procedures that can happen. Um, but again, that's mostly surgical department, yeah, internal I've medicine. Never, I've never <laughs> done a lap laparoscopy. Yeah, I've, I've helped with it, but that was because I was in surgery and helping surgery, not internal medicine. (laughs) So I would say cautions for this week is going to be perforations, like be very careful when you're biopsying things. Um, Watch out your stomach, make sure it doesn't bloat. Um, Make sure you're not causing damage to our scopes. Um, So quick, you know, kind of looking at that. It's the tip of the week. Be sure to inform pet parents that possible complications that can occur with scoping, such as perforation or bloating. I know it's similar to the caution, but it's still yeah. pretty important. <laughs> well, and I, yeah, that's really important too, is like making sure, like work with your clinic to make sure you have a um, consent form. So anesthetic as well as procedural consent, um, just so that they do understand what, what the potential complications risks are. and um, 
because as technicians, we can definitely talk to the pet owners about that. It doesn't have to be the doctors. So, um, you know, just create one if you don't already have one. And now for the question of the week. Um, which technician has the weirdest foreign body, sur- like foreign body scoping pet? Cause I know it belongs to a tech. <laughs> so tell us the story. Let us know what the foreign body was. I feel like all of my foreign bodies with my animals were really boring. I've never, I don't want to talk Ooh, about Oh, don't even yeah. say it. <laughs> don't do it. You got a lot of animals in your house. I know. We um, almost avocado pit once <laughs> oh god avocado like things i've seen um told you about the cheese knife so if yeah. you haven't heard the holiday scopes episode we talk about some fun um scopes in that one so cheese knife golf balls ton of golf balls um sticks fish hooks fish hair hooks. ties Ooh, hair ties oh, hair ties Ooh. yeah yeah rubber bands ribbon <laughs> yeah yep Underwear, candy wrappers, mm-hmm. magnets, socks, toys, Barbie shoes, miscellaneous things that you can't tell what it is. Like, right. You're like, huh? Carpet. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is amazing what I've pulled out of animal stomachs. It's amazing. And I wonder like how similar it is to like children. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's probably pretty similar. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So if you've got, um, if you've got a personal pet that had some crazy form body, um, that has been scoped out of them, let us know. Um, also if you, you know, have a favorite kind of scope that you love, um, let us know, or if you have like a cool reference, because, you know, we always love references. I do love references. <sighs> All right. Anything, um, anything else that we need to touch base on? No, I don't think so. I think that's it. So thanks everybody for listening and making a commitment to learning and just still keeping up with us. We are <laughs> talking about nice. gastric bleeds next week uh, <laughs> to go along with our scoping episode. Yeah, we got some ulceration we're going to be talking about. So that'll yeah. be cool. So uh, right. other than that, we will talk at you guys next week. Thanks. Yep. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.